Welcome back, friends, to Nashville Demystified. Nashville Demystified is a show in which I get to know my home better by talking with the folks who live, work, agitate, and make art here. This is the second installment of my two-part series on The Bell Witch. Today, we are going to dive into the actual story. Well, the quote, actual story. (laughs) And we will get to many of the details that tend to be omitted in its retelling. We'll get to know M.V. Ingram, Martin Van Buren Ingram, the author of the first book on the Bell Witch. We'll get to know uh, Ingram a bit better. And we'll examine theories on what the haunting may have actually been. And... I was contacted by one of the highest authorities in all things Bell Witch uh, regarding last week's episode, so I will share a bit about that. I am, by the way, your host, Alex Steed. Hello. How's it going? If you like National Demystified, I have another show called You Are Good, uh, which I co-host with my friend Sarah Marshall, who is the host of another show called You're Wrong About, and we call You Are Good a feelings podcast about movies. I hope you will check it out. This week, we talk about Jurassic Park dinosaurs, feelings, you know, these things go together like peanut butter and jelly or cheese and tortillas. Hopefully you'll listen to your good. (laughs) This show that you're listening to, Nashville Demystified, is a part of the We Own This Town network of Nashville-based podcasts. We are so grateful to them. If you like this show, which I hope that you do, uh, check out the other shows in the network. One, for example, is Ladyland. My friend Kim Baldwin interviews women from all walks of life and uh, different backgrounds. Go check out that show or check out the other shows on the We Own This Town network. We are grateful to you, We Own This Town, for putting National Demystified in the ears of interested parties. National Demystified is made possible with support from Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, which is a commercial and creative video content production company based in Portland, Maine, and Nashville, Tennessee. But it does work throughout these here United States. So if you need that sort of work made, get in touch with the folks at Knack Factory. Two quick notes before we dive in. The first is that somewhere toward the middle of this episode, we are going to talk about issues that require a content warning. We're going to talk about sexual assault, molestation, and child marriage. And we're not going to go into a lot of detail, but I just want you to be aware of that. And I will give you a heads up as we get closer to that section. The other is that I should have done a better job in the last episode using the phrase enslaved people or enslaved persons rather than just slaves. I should have done a better job of that in the last episode. I had a sneaking suspicion I was doing something incorrect with regard to my phrasing. I wish I looked into it before releasing the episode. I did not. Um, I came across the phrasing in a more recent news article and then I was like, oh, that was it. That was it. I did it wrong. Um, And ideally, I'm going to do it right moving forward. If I do use the term slave this time around, and you hear me do that, it's only when quoting an older text, or at least I'm trying like hell to make sure that that is the case. Also, I can't believe I'm not making this up, but a production company is making a special for Tubby, Tubi, I'm not quite sure the name or the the pronunciation of this network or app or whatever it is, but they're making this documentary about 10 famous regional cryptids. And they interviewed me today about the Bell Witch. So we'll see how much of my postmodern criticism and critical race theory take on this uh, makes it into the final product. Who knows? Who knows if that's actually going to happen or if I'm just going to be used as a talking head to give background on this thing. But I will keep you posted as it comes together. 
So before we get to the subject at hand, I know it's gauche to come out swinging by echoing listener Briz, but I got a lovely message in response to my first installment of this two-parter, and it meant a whole lot to me because it was from Pat Fitzhugh, probably the highest ranking authority in all things Bellwitch. Pat runs the website bellwitch.org and has authored several books on the subject. Pat wrote, excellent episode, excellent. This time of year especially is rife with misinformation and half-truths about the Bell Witch, and this year seems much worse. Thank you so much for setting the record straight in a number of areas. Pat then offered to share some resources uh, that Pat has available with regard to uh, uh, documentation about the Bell Witch before M.V. Ingram's uh, uh, book came out. And then goes on to say, much of Ingram's storyline and situational scenario come from a similar case in the mid-Atlantic region that happened some years before Ingram's book. None of the people interviewed for Ingram's book were eyewitnesses. None, including the two women who are actually alive and living at Red River during the subject period. Even they provided hearsay testimony. I do believe something strange happened in the Bell household between 1817 and 1821, but nothing nearly as outrageous as Ingram led on. Although his stories are fun to read and tell, they're just that, stories. Kate Batts, we talked about Kate in last week's episode, we'll touch on Kate in this week's episode. Kate Batts, was only the scapegoat because she was eccentric and very poor due to her husband Frederick having been paralyzed, which is why the community looked down on her. John Bell also had a dispute over a property line with Josiah Fort, brother of Bell's pastor at Red River Baptist Church. It was ultimately decided by the church in Bell's favor. Thanks again for a great episode. Well, well, well. Ain't that just the bee's knees? Thank you so much for saying so, Pat. This was a delight to receive. It meant so much (laughs) to me to hear from you in this way. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Check out Pat's website, bellwitch.org. has several of his books listed there when you get a chance. The website offers a wonderful collection of resources for those interested in this tale. And now, let us get into the Bellwitch story itself. By now, I've read a few hundred articles about this witch, and they're all structured very similarly. And they're all derived nearly entirely from M.V. Ingram's 1894 book on the subject. The authenticated history of the famous Bell Witch, the wonder of the 19th century, an unexplained phenomenon of the Christian era, the mysterious talking goblin that terrorized the west end of Robertson County, Tennessee, tormenting John Bell to his death, the story of Betsy Bell, her lover, and the haunting Sphinx. I am, I should tell you right now, and maybe as you've just noticed, uh, joined here and there throughout this episode by my pal, Sean Nelson. That was Sean right there reading the title, and you'll hear from him uh, throughout the episode, reading passages from the book. Thanks so much for your contribution, Sean. Since Ingram's book is basically all there is for original Bell Witch material, nearly every single story written on the witch in the past 130 years sources heavily from his quote, authenticated history. A startling amount of the stories right through today tend to quote Ingram, celebrate the sobriety and reliability of his narrative, and present his facts uncritically. And few put it in the context of it nearly certainly being speculative fiction passed off as a piece of ambitious journalism. I think I understand how that lack 
of press criticism occurred initially. This year's report on The Witch is sourced largely from last year's report, and it's a chain that goes all the way back to the 1890s. I can't quite make sense of why some folks still laud Ingram's claims and hold them to be reported as truth outside of laziness. Or also it may be assumed that this is largely because of the effort the book narrative puts forth in celebrating its own indisputable nature. And the very first reporting on the book itself proclaims that the tale comes from reputable people. And it turns out that very reporting on the book came from one of the newspapers that Ingram himself helped start. So there's that. Being a newspaper man in the 1800s, <laughs> you know, it was like it was like in part being a reporter and in part being P.T. Barnum. <laughs> I mean, not dissimilar from being a pundit now, I guess. And so the point is, the claim that this comes from a reputable source or a reputable place has been reverberating ever since the book itself came out. If there's one thing Ingram wanted of readers, it was to be seen as a reputable source, even when covering subject matter of disrepute. And like, I get it. When the original story came out in 1894, all that really mattered was a newspaper man. Again, a reputable person wrote the tale and what he said went. And after decades of reprints of reprints of a synopsis of a piece of speculative fiction passed off as journalism, it becomes the backbone of the local legend and the quote facts become solidified accordingly. And that tale, what is the tale? What is the story? It tends to get reported like this. John Bell moved with his wife Lucy, their kids, and the people they enslaved from North Carolina to what would eventually become Adams, Tennessee at the turn of the 19th century. In 1817, John Bell and his sons were walking. They saw a strange bird that they believed to be a duck, maybe, or maybe it was a turkey. Either way, it was a big bird. It was mysterious. Not long after, John sees a dog that may have a rabbit head. Uh, Not long later, John's daughter, Elizabeth, Betsy, who the story goes out of its way to explain is really, quote, ripening around this time. I'm like, holy shit, Ingram, keep it together. Anyway, Betsy is walking through the woods and sees a girl swinging from a tree limb. Some take this literally, like the girl was a monkey swinging from a limb, and some take it like she was hanging by her neck, or at least that's what I'm going with, because that one is way creepier. An illustration shows a girl just like swinging on a swing, but you know, I'm going with the creepy one. Next, Dean, one of the people enslaved by the Bells, sees a woolly dog with two heads that follows him around before finally vanishing. It's all creepy stuff. Then comes the haunted house phase. While the haunt is called a witch interchangeably, it's more like a poltergeist than anything else. It knocks on the walls, it drags chains, it makes wet mouth noises. <laughs> This is the one that gets me the most wet mouth noises. There's actually a, there's a stuff you missed in history, I think, on this very same thing. And they remarked on the mouth noises. <laughs> I felt kindred spirits in people who were scared of haunted mouth noises. Get out of here with that. I don't want a haunted mouth noise witch. But disturbances would persist in the dark, but vanish once candles were lit. And the haunt exclusively focused its attention on John and Betsy Bell. It would snatch Betsy's covers and harass her. It seemed hell-bent on getting between her and Joshua Gardner, her young suitor. And it was successful in driving a wedge between the two. It would make John feel as if there were a stick stuck in his mouth. The family would try to keep 
their ordeal a secret for a year, but it got to be too much for them to handle. And they told some friends and the friends were there and the witch conversed with the friends saying, once I was happy, but now I've been disturbed and made unhappy. Once I was dead, but now I live. I don't know if it said it like that. I think it was just more of a conversational uh, witch at this point. But the witch was called Kate because folks thought it was somehow related to a poor eccentric lady named Kate Batts. And even though it wasn't a witch, again, it was a poltergeist. It was named and gendered in stories accordingly, as though it had some connection with, uh, with poor Kate, who had said had bad business dealings with John at some point in the past and was angry about these things. But we addressed that in last episode and talk about what was really going on there. And you don't always hear this clarification about Kate in the modern retellings of the story, which is a bummer if you were a person who lived like 200 years ago and your name just keeps getting brought into a story about a haunting because people think that you were, uh, you were just a spiteful lady. The spirit haunts John and Betsy for years. Like, think about it. Like, Kate Betts is a pious lady who enjoys going to church. She, she seems very into church. And we talk about her hundreds of years later, and a lot of people suggest she was the person who was responsible for haunting this family. It's the worst. It's the worst possible outcome. That's not the legacy I think she wants. And let's unequivocally set the record straight. People said it was Kate because she was a, a wacky old lady. I'm the equivalent of a wacky old lady. <laughs> and so I feel a great kinship uh, with Kate Batts. The spirit haunts John and Betsy for years. With John, it haunts him, afflicting his body until his death. When he dies, a vial of poison is found beside him. Surviving family members throw the poison into a fire and a blue flame appears. The haunt takes credit for poisoning John. It also puts Betsy through a series of fainting spells, and it interferes with her courtship with Joshua Gardner, successfully driving a wedge between them, and she ends up marrying her, quote, handsome schoolmaster, which was an option at this point. Instead, for some reason, the witch preferred the schoolmaster. It's a it's fascinating where its preferences lie. And this is outside of the telling of the story, but a lot of people think or have said that the haunt was part of the family trying to get in between Betsy and Joshua because they wanted her to be with the schoolmaster or some version of that. I don't know. I don't know about that, but that's the thing that some people say. At some point, it is said, even though this is broadly agreed upon to be a lie, that Andrew Jackson visits the family to get a load of this phenomenon and... The haunt inexplicably loves Lucy, John's wife, Betsy's mom. Everybody loves Lucy in this story. That's the primary takeaway outside of the haunting is that Lucy was a cool cat. Most of these reports, copies of copies of copies, in fact, do Ingram's story a number of favors by keeping the tale tight and concise. And tight and concise are two things that Ingram's highly Victorian vocabulary and prose didn't allow for. Uh... These modern retellings cut a lot of the details that are frankly bonkers, uh, bananas, racist, or remind of the fact that the heroes in our story are ultimately slaveholders, or some combination of all of the above. For example, here are a number of the details you may have missed out on by just relying on uh, the newspaper telling you this year's summation of the Bell Witch story. The haunt, which again is referred to interchangeably as a witch, loves church and the gospel. 
and calls a pious member of the family social circle Old Sugarmouth because she loves his gift for reciting the scripture Old Sugarmouth. Again, the witch calls a man Old Sugarmouth. <laughs> It's so good. The witch would go to church where everyone would encounter it. It was also super talkative and sang hymns and could quote any bit of the scripture and swore like a sailor, particularly when referring to its nemesis, John Bell, or to black folks generally because the witch was extraordinarily racist. The witch's presence made everyone in the community good because they were scared of getting caught by the all-seeing ghoul. Here, for example, is one of my favorite passages regarding how the public is said to have responded to Kate. Kate the witch never slept, was never idle or confined to any place, but was here, there, and everywhere, like the mist of the night or the morning sunbeams, was everything and nothing, invisible and yet present, spreading all over the neighborhood, prying into everybody's business and domestic affairs, caught up to every ludicrous thing that happened, and all of the sordid, avaricious meanness that transpired, divining the inmost secrets of the human heart, and withal was a great blabbermouth, getting neighbors by the ears, taunting people with their sins and shortcomings, and laughing at their folly and trying to discover the identity of the mystery. <laughs> So the witch was just like terrifying people because the witch could see everything. The witch could report on what was going on with the Bell family back in North Carolina. The witch goes from curious and interesting to all out evil when, and I am not kidding when I tell you this, when it tries to go to a Baptist sermon and a Methodist sermon at the same time. And this sort of fries the witch's circuit board and it becomes a total dick showing up at the Bell House drunk. This poltergeist, it gets drunk. And this isn't really an omitted detail, but it gives a sense of Ingram's flavor of prose, uh, going back to how strange it feels when he describes Betsy. Elizabeth, the youngest daughter of John and Lucy Bell, was born in 1805 and was only 12 years of age when our family troubles commenced. A light-hearted, romping lass whose roguish beauty and mischievous glance made the hearts of the boys go pit-a-pat, while she yet enjoyed most of the gay notes of the woodland songsters, or a stroll with her associates in search of wildflowers, berries, etc., along the riverside. She was also characterized for her keen wit and sparkling humor, nor had her domestic education, that which added most to a young girl's popularity in olden times, been neglected, to all of which must be added industrious habits, gentleness, and womanly dignity. It's wild. Dean, one of the people the Bells enslaved, reports having been turned into a donkey and ridden around by the ghost. And the ghost, I don't know if you remember this, but the ghost reports to have hated the enslaved more than it actually hates John Bell, but it eventually kills John Bell, but it threatens the enslaved with a lot of violence. I, I, I don't quite understand who it hates more, but this situation occurred throughout an entire evening. The ghost riding Dean, who was turned into a donkey. And like, we're still in the territory of being moderately rational here. Well, the donkey thing, maybe not so much, but at some point, 
the cast of characters expands when the witch manifests as four different characters, or maybe there are just four new characters. I'm not entirely sure, but it's like a family of ghosts led by a character named Black Dog. The rest of Black Dog's gang is comprised of mathematics, cryptography, and Jerusalem. <laughs> They sing songs and they create general havoc. As if to be haunted by a murderous ghost isn't enough, being haunted by a singing ghost family sounds like the absolute worst. And okay, here we go. At some point, a wizard from Kentucky shows up and is bested by the witch. Two men, on separate occasions, successfully tried to shake the witch's hand. Folks come from far and wide to meet the witch, including naysayers, and the witch beats, physically beats, a detective in his own bed. A witch bounty hunter shows up with a special formula for ridding the house of the witch, which includes a gun, a silver bullet, and a cat's tail. And the witch beats the shit out of him, too. Andrew Jackson, who again is visiting at this time, witnesses all of it, and he says... In the immortal words of old Hickory, I've never had as much fun in all my life. This beats fighting the British. <laughs> and this doesn't even get into the details of the chapters of the Bible, the foundations of Methodism, the pieces of gossip about Kate Batts, for whom the ghost is hastily and arguably irresponsibly named, as I was saying earlier, in the supposed eyewitness accounts from a bunch of people who had to be in their 90s, if not already dead by the time the research was being done on this book. One of which is of note because they were, in the words of the book, the baby the witch spanked. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's great. If you just accept again that it's speculative fiction, it is great. Uh, I mean, outside of all the parts where the witch is racist, I feel like if we were making it up, we could have made the witch not be racist, but we had to distract from the actual institutional racism that was happening at that time. Brutal institutional racism. In the last episode, we talked about the Bell Witch and its legacy and what this story in the legacy itself has to say about those who felt compelled by it and who feel compelled to keep it moving along. One thing I was reminded of when putting that episode together is that ghosts in ghost stories often appear to stand in proximity to things that many of us have unresolved feelings about. Things which we tend not to allow our whole psyches to touch. The storied ghost from an Indian burial ground perhaps exists because we, particularly those of European descent, have unreconciled and often deeply repressed feelings about how many of those bodies got buried in the first place and the responsibility we share for how they got there. Or or a ghost story may reimagine historic perpetrators of horror. Rather than acknowledging the horror of holding slaves or encroaching upon native territory, making life hell for those they exploit, a story rewrites these perpetrators themselves as victims of circumstance. And these stories may reimagine forefathers responsible for these sins as innocent, actually. My friend Betsy Phillips is a Nashville-based writer and storyteller. I adore her so much. She's a hero of mine in this arena, that of the modern historian and keeper of folktales. She's written about the Bell Witch on and off for years in her blog, Tiny Cat Pants. I love that name for a blog. <laughs> And I reread all of her writing about the subject while putting this installment together. I said in our last episode that it is the stories about the stories we love that I find most fascinating. And I was heartened to find that Betsy said something similar, explaining that any attempt to dismiss or debunk the Bell Witch story was missing the point of the witch. And I very much agree. 
Like I said a few minutes back, the ghost story is often a way to process real-life horror we can't quite touch ourselves, either by subconsciously imagining our proximity to historic horror or supplementing the actual scary part of our lives with something supernatural. A story about the Bell Witch Cave once emerged about a girl who would go into the cave with her friends around the early 40s, and she asserted that the witch wouldn't let her light candles, which she took as a form of protection from Nazis. Like if she lit the candle, Nazis would see her and the witch was protecting her from that. And that's not an immediate threat, of course, but Nazis obviously were a very real specter at the time. It was a very real poltergeist, particularly in 1943 and unfortunately very, very relevant at our present moment. What safer way for a child to acknowledge that Nazis are fucking scary than to imagine a supernatural force field? It's kind of awesome when you think about it. So I'm about to get into some trigger warning territory about sexual assault. Uh, and I just want to give you the heads up on that. If you if you aren't able to put your brain there, that's totally fine. There's other stuff to listen to. Again, I have a podcast called You Are Good. Uh, we're not going to get too detailed, but we're certainly going to mention some stuff that uh, comes with some baggage for many folks out there. A few years back, a psychic told the Tennessean that they believed the witch was actually an enslaved person who was protecting Betsy from John, who according to the psychic, uh, was unable to intervene on the part of Betsy, who, again, according to the psychic, was getting sexually assaulted by another family member. Like, John Bell was the Jim Bob Duger of the household or something along those lines. It is worth noting that this is literally as credible as Ingram's account, since Ingram's account, as far as we know, is based in no reality. Uh, it's again, I'll say it again one more time. It's just speculative fiction, not tied to reality. And the scenario, if only figurative, again, we just don't know. This conjecture is absolutely rooted in real anxieties, both within families and society. We are, of course, much more likely to be in the receiving end of sexual assault and abuse than on the harassment of a sassy ghost. This narrative is as rooted in any other processing of actual, real, common anxiety and trauma. But you know, even this telling bums me out because in it, the enslaved person kills John not because John is the head of a slaveholding family and holy shit, that's bad, but to protect the sanctity of a young white girl. Noble, sure, but the narrative remains a bummer. Who knows? There are a few details from which one could plausibly construct some version of this telling, particularly how the witch loves Lucy and ultimately Betsy in the witch's way. Uh, it paid attention to Betsy. It tormented John. One can draw their own conclusions as to why. Again, flimsy. This is flimsy, but it's there. And the anxiety itself is rooted in some truth of the actual bell matter, not about Betsy specifically, but about the fact that John himself married his wife Lucy when she was 12 years old. And in retrospect, that obviously feels very, very gross. And the concept of molestation and disregard for agency based on gender and age, or through today's lens, gender identity, is a real actual horror that resonates with many, an actual literal haunting. So I can see the connection, or if this story is made up, I can see what the impulse to make it up may have been trying to address. Of course, I looked up child brides in America when reading about John's marriage to Lucy, and this is a total aside, but I learned that Loretta Lynn made up getting married at 13 in Coal Miner's Daughter, and rather got married at 15 to appear more country. 
And it turns out that the census did not link age with marriage until 1880. And by then, 11.7% of girls 15 through 19 were wives. I don't know the number of those who were Lucy's age, again, age 12. It turns out in the States, the concept of, quote, child brides did not really exist until the mid-1840s. And it didn't become a super popular idea or concept until the mid-1870s. And so even if this concept of John, who again was 42 when he married this 12-year-old, would have been seen as moderately banal at the time, it does reflect the choicelessness of the era, a choicelessness in which girls especially are afforded no opportunity to become fully realized, or where it is seen at least ideally as a union of equals. And the symbols represented in the story remind us of the anxieties in our present moment regarding these things or the lack thereof. And so, you know, on some level, a witch banging around a house and poisoning this man is almost easier to take than to truly put your brain on a time and place that already had so much blood in its hands where the agency of a child wasn't really a thing because the concept of a child itself wasn't really a thing. And anyway, this episode is not about child brides. The ghost story does a lot of psychological heavy lifting for us puny, fragile humans. It helps us focus our attention on fantastic manifestations of horror rather than to try to digest the actual. And in telling us these stories, whether we intend to or not, we help to create a fixation beyond the actual horrors of our daily lives and our collective pasts. Though whatever feelings we evoke may cross from the fantastic into how we process our feelings about the very real. Betsy Phillips, who I mentioned earlier, and we'll mention again later with regard to a very satisfying theory and what the Bell Witch may have actually been, Betsy has some great takes about M.V. Ingram. Perhaps, she posits, Ingram stumbled onto the various broader anecdotal mentions of the Bell Witch story while himself moved by the spiritualist craze of the 19th century and formulated his Victorian-tinged embellishments accordingly. This isn't even particularly a far-fetched assumption, as there's a whole chapter in the book, the most substantial one beyond the purported testimony of one of John Bell's sons, that is dedicated to effectively celebrating the way spiritualism has biblical precedent. Among many of the other observations in this chapter, Ingram quotes biblical scholars who link the spiritual realm and biblical reality. Take the following quote from Dr. Adam Clark. I believe there's a supernatural and spiritual world in which human spirits, both good and bad, live in a state of consciousness. I believe that any of these spirits may, according to the order of God, in the laws of their place of residence, have intercourse with this world and become visible to mortals. There are a few dozen pages devoted to exactly this sentiment. And if Ingram was not moved by spiritualism himself, I imagine he was trying to speak to the spiritualist fervor of the age, which would have been at its absolute height when he decided to write his take on the Bell Witch. After all, he was a seasoned newspaper man. He knew what the public wanted. And a total far-fetched aside you know, if we're considering what may have been in the air that may have informed Ingram's approach to the writing of this book. In 1877, the Tennessean reran a piece that originally ran in the London Saturday Review uh, that was titled How to Tell a Ghost Story. And I really just want to imagine, I want to believe that Ingram saw that and the wheels started turning. 
In a lot of ways, I think the chapter about the intersection between spiritualism and the Bible is where the point of the book ultimately lies. So much specific thinking went into this chapter, and it's like about upholding ideas of purity of the settlers who are illustrated as pious and hardworking and fair. And more than anything, the phenomenon of the witch is used to illustrate the good Christian nature of the family. And it's used as an opportunity to talk about Christianity itself and the goodness of Christianity and to show that good people are Christians and Christians are good people. And the opposite of Christians are ultimately evil who want to undo good people. And then there are all the other norms that are enforced throughout the book, such as the aforementioned description of Betsy Bell that goes as far to describe in her all the desirable traits of an old-fashioned woman or a girl becoming a woman. Ingram's telling is about spiritual fervor, yes, and it's an illustration of good people in simpler times, about their admirable allegiance to God, and about their adherence to old-fashioned ideals. You know, I can't believe it took us this long to get here, but aren't you curious to know about the newspaper man himself, M.V. Ingram, the person who likely shaped every single perception you have of his ghost? Again, I can't believe we waited so long to get here. Ingram was born in 1832, got into the newspaper game shortly after he turned 30, and stayed there for nearly 40 years. He was known for his editorials. He had big opinions. In one editorial toward the end of his life, he took credit for having brought the modern penitentiary system to Tennessee and laid rhetorical waste to an editor who claimed that it was he who helped create the system. Ingram had kids, at least two daughters, and a son that appears to have died as a relatively young adult. Ingram was born and raised in Clarksville, not far from where the original Bell situation took place. And according to some want ads, he had a cottage that he was constantly trying to rent out. <laughs> <laughs> when I say Ingram was a newspaper man, I mean he built newspapers. He was resilient. The papers he kicked off featured cutting-edge printing technology, and he was just kind of a big deal. It seemed like he was a big personality, at least in print. But when Ingram died in 1909, there were a few interesting things revealed in his obituaries. The first is that the witch book the book by which literally everyone who knew his name a generation after he died would ultimately know him for, the witch book got no mention. None. And this makes me wonder how he felt about the book and about how his fellow newspapermen, those who took over his business, felt about the book. Again, it is the achievement by which we know his name, by which his name became relatively common. It didn't get one single mention. And that is so weird. Then, while Ingram would remain involved with papers right through the end of his life, one of the obituaries says that he left the newspaper business in the 1880s, although he kept writing, and one piece in the early 1890s said that he was leaving that particular paper in order to focus specifically on the book about the Bell Witch. It makes me wonder about the circumstances behind his writing the book in the first place. While he appeared to be a grand figure, it sounded like Ingram had some tough stints throughout his career. One of the obituaries read, Mr. Ingram's health failed him under the continued strain of his work, and this, together with repeated family affliction, losses by fire, and other things, combined to force him from the newspaper proprietorship. I wonder to what extent his embarking on writing a sensationalist book based on a fabricated account of a witch was the passion project of Ingram, who appeared deeply moved by actual issues, and how much of it was, well, you know, a lot of people will probably buy a book about a witch. 
I don't know. We don't have any real indication, but I can't help but wonder if this is why the book got no mention in an obituary that would go out of its way to highlight Ingram's many achievements. And this last bit, it's a total aside, but it's about Ingram's relationship to tobacco. Ingram was a tobacco enthusiast, advocate, bordering on lobbyist. His obituary lauds his contribution, suggesting he was responsible for helping turn the region into the second largest producer in the world. And it turns out, I hadn't really caught this prior, but it turns out that John Bell himself was a tobacco farmer. I don't know if Ingram's fixation on Bell was coincidental or if the fixation was from one tobacco enthusiast to another, a particularly put-upon enthusiast, what with the haunting that leads to John's murder and all. But the commercial appeal, a newspaper based in Memphis, wrote of Ingram, largely through his efforts, the Clarkville tobacco market was made second largest in the world, and the successful organization of the Dark Tobacco Growers Association is due him for the work in the interest of the organization through the Clarksville Leaf Chronicle, which again is the paper that he worked on. And I can't tell exactly what this is saying, and just bear with me because this is interesting, but I can't tell exactly what it's saying because it's not directly associating Ingram with the Dark Tobacco Growers Association, but it is saying that the association owes Ingram for his work on organizing around tobacco, I guess. And I can't tell if this is an endorsement of Ingram's work or if it's a slight in that the mentioned association was known by this time in part for its campaign of terror waged against businesses with which they had contention, a campaign of terror and militancy. Uh, And I can't tell again if this is being tagged onto Ingram or if it's just anecdotal. Once again, the story about the story is often much more fascinating than the story itself. Was Ingram sympathetic to the association radicals who were known as the Knight Riders? And if he was, was his version of Bell, an upright, honest Christian man put upon by this unending poltergeist, was this a metaphor for something? Honestly, I don't know. First of all, This is way further down the rabbit hole than I'm used to getting into. And second, it's confusing because while he's thanked in this sort of secondhand way, at some point during the height of the association's terror campaign, an open letter from the association militants, again, the Knight Riders, appears in the paper to Ingram on the front page of the paper. It's quoted, demanding from him money. Was he actually an enemy of these militants? Or did Ingram, known for wholesale making stories of about, let's say, 19th century ghost stories, did Ingram make this story up for a bit of attention, diversion, exoneration, the ability to raise funds? We may never know. We may never know. Here's what I do know, though. Remember how I said my friend Betsy Phillips had a theory about the Bell Witch that was a much more satisfying reconciliation? of speculation and an acknowledgement of some of the actual horrors of the day, a place where the aforementioned fantastic diversion meets an acknowledgement of the actual? Well, what follows is read directly from Betsy's blog, which I cited earlier. I should note that I would have had Betsy read this, but she recently had some surgery that put a bit of strain on her voice, so I'm going to do it myself. Hear this in Betsy's voice, if you know what Betsy's voice sounds like. Here goes. Over the years, 
there's been a lot of speculation about just what exactly the Bell Witch was. Poltergeist, spurned lover, giant hoax, and my friends, I also have a theory. Let us look at what we know. First, there appeared some strange animals. Then there were sounds and voices. Then there were physical afflictions on the Bell family. And then, let us ask ourselves, if this were not something supernatural, who, besides the Bells, could have done this? No one, you say. Dear Aunt B, all of the legends say that whenever they went to examine the source of the noises, no one was there. But is that really true? Who, in 1817 in Tennessee, could have been physically present at almost all times and not be counted as someone? able to move around the property without ever raising any suspicion. Who might have had knowledge of potions and concoctions that could give a powerless person some power over her oppressors? Who would have access to socks, shoes, or footprints necessary to do something such as moving them from town, jinxing them, bringing them under control in love or money matters, or giving them an unnatural illness? And what illness more unnatural than John Bell's? who came from a culture with a well-established history of using ventriloquism in their conjuring, and who would have had the most to lose from John Bell's history of poor business dealings, or perhaps an unwise marriage. Yep, I suspect that the Bell Witch was right there under their noses the whole time, and that her legend is evidence of a great and lasting conjuration perpetrated by one or more of their slaves. So this is not a particularly controversial take, that if the Bell family troubles were as M.V. Ingram described, it may have been the case that one of the people they enslaved or several of those people poisoned John Bell. Dr. Megan Mann, a chemistry professor at Austin PA State University, I hope I am saying this correctly, recently released a paper suggesting that based on the description of the blue flame produced by the vial thrown into the fire, it's likely that Bell was poisoned by arsenic by one or more of the people enslaved by John. That's not what is posited. What is posited as it is arsenic. And what is posited is there was a trend around this time of enslaved people, uh, turning arsenic on the people who enslaved them. According to a piece that ran in the Leaf Chronicle earlier this year, and I love this because the Leaf Chronicle ultimately is a paper that M.V. Ingram worked on himself uh, and wrote for, according to this Leaf Chronicle article, the Bell family was considered a wealthy family in the early 1800s. They had a number of enslaved people on the farm and historical records from that time show enslaved people poisoning their enslavers, Mann said. Love it. I love this take. It's not entirely different from the psychic's take, but the psychic's take posits a lot of details that are, you know, a bit far-fetched as to the rationale. And again, uh, I don't like it that they're doing it to save the white girl. I like it (laughs) that they're poisoning their enslavers. In another piece by Betsy Phillips, she gets more specific about this theory. This one is a little longer, Please bear with me. Um, and there's some dialogue in it. I'm going to do my best to maintain you know, different voices in the cadence of reading this piece so you can understand when there's dialogue involved. So here it goes. A song sung in Tennessee often has two meanings, one apparent to whomever listens to it and one coded for a deliberate audience. 
You probably learned about this in school, how a field full of people picking cotton might sing, follow the drinking gourd to direct a man hidden in the stand of trees to go north in the direction the Big Dipper points while the overseer sits on his horse, oblivious. That's the way the story of the witch goes too. Some folks tell the story as if it's a story about an old woman angry about being cheated in a slave trade. Others tell it as if it's a story about a man who couldn't keep his hands off his daughter and the embodiment of her unspoken fury. It is a story about revenge, at least the way I heard it. That much is true. And it is a story of a young mother, but not the bell woman. This is the story of a young mother sold to a new family, away from her babies, who swore to always hate the whole family, to destroy them all starting with the father, the worst, the one with the sharp tongue and the quick fist. But those were strange times, and eventually she softened towards the woman, helped keep them as safe as she could. She could wander around the house unnoticed. She knew what plants in the wilds of Robertson County could kill. She could slip the poison into the food. She could work the foot magic that hobbled the old man. She could speak without anyone noticing her mouth moving. She could make an animal do her bidding. She could stop a president in his tracks. She could read, but no one knew that but her. Do you know Marie Laveau? Yes, I said. This woman could have been like that if she wasn't stuck out in the country. If you know the work, you can recognize a worker. And the witch was a powerful worker. You hear that story if you know what to listen for. And you hear the story of the greatest hoodoo woman in Tennessee, hands down. Do you think she still haunts that place? Sure I do. Have you seen her? Oh no, I don't mess with things that powerful. Now my grandmother in her day, she might have. She was fearless, but not me. I know better, there's trouble. Why do you think she's still there? Because that's her land now, sweetie. That's the point of the story. You do the work, you get the reward. All right, everybody. That's all I've got on this subject. For now, at least. Thanks so much for taking this ride with me. I, uh, I'm grateful for all your time and attention. Thanks so much to Cameron Davidson for producing this episode. And thanks to Betsy Phillips for all of her insights and kind words. Uh, I cited her blog, Tiny Cat Pants. She's an author. She's a local personality. She is wonderful. Thanks so much for everything, Betsy. Thanks to Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, for underwriting this effort. And to We Own This Town for distributing it. Thanks to you for hanging around. Thanks to Sam Sharp for the photograph we use in today's episode art. Uh, Thanks again, Sam. Sam appeared in last week's episode art as well. We'll be releasing a zine about the Bell Witch and other Tennessee occult odds and ends soon. Stay tuned for that. I appreciate you hanging with us. I really do. It's nice to be here. I'm Alex Steed. This is Nashville Demystified. 